beginning with verse 16. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed, spitting at him, kneeling, bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took off the purple and put his garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. They pressed him into service to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he would not take it. And they crucified him, and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read in three languages, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And thus the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were casting at him the same insult. When the sixth hour had come, Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink, saying, Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus then uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was 
the Son of God. Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, of the rest of you noticed what I've noticed that we live in a culture where people are easily and readily offended offended means to be resentful and annoyed and typically this is as a result of a perceived insult and people are insulted or annoyed by a lot of different things these days one writer wrote this about the current state of affairs this person wrote, I truly believe that we are the most whiny, sensitive, thin-skinned, easily offended society in the history of the world. Nobody has ever been as prolific at getting offended as we are. 
Nobody cries over insignificant nonsense as loudly and consistently as us. We have an unlimited capacity for offendedness. Every week there are dozens of new national outrages and boycott campaigns and social media crusades to raise awareness about some offensive thing or to get someone fired for saying some offensive thing or to teach people that some previously non-offensive thing has now become offensive. Most of all, I find myself positively dazzled by the dexterity and athleticism with which we get offended. We can juggle six or seven outrages all at once and then drop them and pick them up with new ones in the blink of an eye. Now, if you add to this reality in our culture today, the fact that we're in a media and social media saturated culture, which spreads offense among millions of people in just a matter of minutes, we could easily describe this time in which we live as the era of offense. Related to this is what people tend to do, those of us who don't want to be accused of saying or doing something offensive. They don't want anyone to be outraged by what they speak or how they present themselves or even by their expressions or demeanor. So what they do is they try to remove the offense. Even more so, they sometimes try to remove that offense in advance altogether to avoid that offense. Of course, getting offended by words or an idea is not a new thing at all. Maybe just more prevalent and noticeable in our culture today because of the instant and pervasive nature of the media. But tonight, we're marking the occasion of what is perhaps the most consistently offensive event in history. And it's an offense that people are still trying to avoid and undo. I say it's consistently offensive because from the very beginning, the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has been an offense to many and a stumbling block to faith. In the biblical sense, a stumbling block is something that traps us, something that trips us up, that keeps some in this context from coming to faith, but it's also vital to all of our understanding of what Jesus did for us and why he had to do it. If we think of the modern-day understanding of offense, which means being resentful or annoyed due to some perceived insult, we can begin to understand why the gospel, which is rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, has been so offensive to so many for two millennia. Why is that? Because the cross declares that only the tremendous sacrifice of the sinless Son of God was enough to save us. The cross says that we're only savable through the cross, through that sacrifice. Jesus offended many groups and many individuals during his earthly ministry. That's because he told them the truth. And the truth is sometimes offensive to us, even as the truth was offensive to them. The truth of the cross and the need for the cross still offends to this day. The cross tells us the truth too. It tells us that we cannot save ourselves. The cross tells us we're so lost that we need a sacrifice. The cross was offensive because it was a shameful form of execution. The cross reminds us that we, that's you, that's me, we deserved this death. But Jesus took it upon himself instead. Now to many people, in Jesus' day as well as in our own day, that's a very offensive 
idea. It's offensive today also because people cannot reconcile in their minds a loving God sacrificing His own Son. There have been some Christian writers who have even called this cosmic child abuse. The very idea is offensive today, even as it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked this earth. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul recognized that the offense of the cross was central to its meaning. It wasn't as if it was accidentally offensive. It was intentionally offensive because it tells us the truth about ourselves. It's kind of like that slap in the face to get your attention. Paul's own personal persecution proved that he was preaching the good news. If he had taught what the false teachers were teaching, no one would have been offended. But because he was teaching the truth, he was persecuted by both Jews and Judaizers. If Paul were preaching circumcision, then that offense, literally that scandal on or stumbling block of the cross, would have ceased to exist in his ministry. But it hadn't, because people still found the gospel message, which proclaims man's total inability to contribute anything to his salvation, people still found that to be very offensive. So the culture of Jesus' day and the culture of our day does not like to be told that we can't do anything about our salvation. Our culture's humanistic understanding of man is that, hey, we're all good, aren't we? And what we need is time to learn and to grow and kind of literally outgrow our bad side. Well, folks, that's a Star Trek universe, but it's not the real world according to Scripture. If justification before God in any sense at all depended on how well we kept the rules, then Jesus' death on the cross, which we remember tonight, was unnecessary and could bring us nothing. But we know that it is necessary, even though it seems offensive, even though it seems foolish. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in chapter 1. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul's emphasis is the gospel, and the gospel is totally wrapped up in the cross 
of Christ. When Paul talks here about eloquent wisdom, he's talking about what the world sees as the opposite of the foolishness of the gospel. He's telling us that our clever and eloquent words and schemes can risk diluting the amazing power of the cross in the gospel message itself. If Paul in preaching had either substituted human wisdom for the doctrine of the cross, or he had so presented that doctrine as to turn it into some sort of philosophy, his preaching would have been powerless. It would lose its divine element and become nothing more than human wisdom. Whatever obscures the cross deprives the gospel of its power. Whatever obscures the cross deprives the gospel of its power. And yes, there are many things that can obscure the cross. We see that happening even in many quarters of the church today. In just a few weeks, this month, a very popular TV preacher will fill the BOK Center downtown at $15 a ticket. He fills his own church every Sunday. I assume those services are free. In a building that used to be an NBA basketball arena, he's a best-selling author. One thing you can be virtually certain of You'll hear about in this meeting at the BOK Center in a few weeks, you'll hear about having your best life now, but you won't hear the gospel because you won't hear the cross preached. You won't hear the cross preached in all of its terrible glory. In fact, there's no cross to be seen in his own church, and that's very intentional. He's said so. Now, yes, of course, you can preach the cross without having a visual reminder of a cross. That's not essential. But if you remove the cross from sight, it's sometimes harder to remember it. He says this about his own church. He says it's not a churchy feel. We don't have crosses up there. We believe in all that, but I like to take the barriers down that have kept people from coming. Singer and author Michael Card recognized this trend in America and even in the church. He wrote this, particularly in American Christianity, the cross has become somewhat objectionable. Well-known pastors avoid referring to it in their sermons and on their TV programs because it's too negative. He writes, other people are put off by the violence the cross portrays. Shouldn't we focus instead on the gentler side of the gospel? Now, let me be clear. I have no problem at all with trying to remove barriers to the faith. Paul himself wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 9, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians, He wrote, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. In Acts 15, talking to his fellow believers about Jewish rules and regulations and debating about what should be required of the Gentiles, Jesus said in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, it's my, I'm sorry, James said in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so there are legitimate strategies, there are legitimate plans to participate with the Holy Spirit in bringing people to Christ and removing potential barriers that need not keep people away. In some churches, this might mean something about the church culture, such as men not having to wear suits and ties or women not having to wear dresses to church. That is, helping people feel comfortable however they might be dressed. And in many cases, when these kinds of things are done with the right intent, and they're done with the right focus, without compromising on truly biblical standards, there's certainly nothing wrong with those kinds of strategies. But you know what, folks? There are some barriers 
or to use the biblical phrase stumbling blocks that cannot be removed from churches, even for the sake, the good intention of reaching people for Christ, maybe especially for reaching people with the whole gospel. That's because these real barriers, and I don't want to imply that some of these things aren't in some way barriers, but they're there for a vital purpose. Without this particular barrier, this stumbling stone, this offense of the cross that we're looking at here tonight, we cannot fully understand the good news. The cross is an absolutely essential part of that good news. You know, there's an old adage which goes, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with a gospel which requires you first to remove the offense of the cross because you think that's a barrier to people coming, then you're not really winning them to the Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. The Jesus that we are worshiping here tonight. The Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, if Jesus endured the cross, knowing that joy and glory awaited him, yet knowing that the cross, and only the cross, was the painful, terrible path he must walk to that glory, then why should we think that the cross is an insurmountable barrier to bringing people to Christ or even getting them to church? Would we say to our children, for example, hey, we're going to take away this barrier of actually finishing high school because we know that it's painful, we know that it's hard, and all that hard work is really offensive to you. But we're going to take it away, and you'll still be able to get a really good job when you grow up. Well, I'd submit to you tonight that as we mark the occasion of Jesus' death on the cross, that we cannot remove the barrier of the cross. The most troubling thing about this preacher that I mentioned a moment ago, the one who doesn't have crosses up in his own church, is not so much that there's no crosses to be seen in his church, but more so that there's no cross in his preaching. The cross is offensive. Paul recognized it. Jesus recognized it. Let's be honest about that. It's offensive for all the reasons we've mentioned, but it's also the way to salvation, which makes it the wonderful cross that we sang about just moments ago. Yet the whole message of the cross is very offensive to our natural minds. The whole idea that it takes the death of God incarnate to save our souls is a barrier to many, many people. But it's something that we need to be confronted by. If we water it down, if we remove this barrier, if we make it easier to step over this barrier, if we make it easier for them to ignore or not fully consider the cost we're inevitably watering down the gospel message, which includes the fact that Jesus must and did die on that cross. The word called this barrier a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. In some passages, it's the same word from which we get the English word scandal. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven six, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. In Romans 9.33, we read a quote from the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 
So even Isaiah saw prophetically, quoted here in Romans, hundreds of years before Jesus took up his cross, Isaiah saw that Jesus, and by inference, the cross of Christ, the way that God chose to bring salvation to men, he saw that it would be a barrier, a stumbling stone. He saw that it would be offensive. The stumbling stone, the scandal, the offense, the barrier is Jesus on the cross. We read a this a moment ago, but let me read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So for us to take away that barrier of the cross, even though we may be good intentioned in doing that, is to reduce the cross to something less than God intended it to be. Reduce it to something at least not necessary. Well, it's another option out there. And at worst, it's taken out of the equation altogether. The cross is critical. It's essential in God's plan of salvation in our walk of faith. But I'd say this evening that the cross is irreducible. As much as our culture, as much as we might sometimes think about trying, as much as we might attempt to remove it, as a barrier, as much as the world might like to make the cross into only a symbol and rob it of its eternal meaning, the cross is irreducible. It's irreducible in time. It's irreducible in eternity. So unless we embrace that barrier, just as Jesus embraced his own destiny on that same cross, I don't believe we can truly come into the kingdom of God. I don't believe we can live lives of sacrificial service to the king. Unless we consider, that means think about, unless we consider the offense of the cross and realize as the song we sometimes sing here at TCF says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Unless we think about these things, how can we really be saved unless we consider that cost? Then it says to me that we must think We don't need that awful price to be paid. Well, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. And if we don't think the price needs to be paid, how can we accept Jesus' free gift of salvation, of eternal life to us? The cross, folks, is what it took to save us. To remove the cross for the sake of removing barriers, removing offense to the gospel is not the whole gospel. The cross isn't just a symbol, it's more, it's so much more than just a symbol. Not only should we not remove the cross from our churches, but I think we should embrace everything that the cross means. I think we should embrace all it means in our lives. I think we should embrace all it means in history and all it means in eternity. After all, the cross is the reason we are here together tonight. And that's not just because we're Christians saved by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, but because it's important. It's not important just this one day a year, but it's important always, every day, every hour, and of course, especially on this day, which we've chosen to mark Jesus' death on the cross. It's important to remember, and not just to remember, but to ponder, to consider, to think about Jesus' suffering for us. His horrible, painful death to purchase our salvation with his blood. The writer of Hebrews said this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the next verse says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here we have the admonition to first fix our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross, and then we're admonished again to consider him, to think about him. Think about Jesus who endured. So we see in the span of two verses that we're to focus on him, to consider, to think about, to ponder Jesus who endured the cross. Oswald Chambers wrote, all heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. We who preach the gospel, and you know that should be all of us as believers in Christ here tonight, cannot think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We can't imagine ourselves with the job of making Christ somehow acceptable to our friends, to our neighbors, to our families, to big business, to the press, to the world of sports, to the media or entertainment world. Folks, we are not diplomats. We are prophets. We're witnesses. We're His witnesses. And our message is not a compromise, but it's an ultimatum. The cross will always be God's final statement about what He thinks about the best we can do. Yes, the cross is offensive. It's offensive because it's an indictment of who we are apart from Christ. It's easy to find ways around this truth and soften the rather harsh and offensive meaning of the cross. But again, when we do that, we reduce it to meaninglessness. We reduce it to a mere symbol rather than what it is, the instrument of our salvation. The late Charles Colson wrote this. He wrote, The church stands or falls on its adherence to Scripture and its historic confessions. This may offend, but the scandal of the cross has always offended. Rather than offend, however, the church has gradually, almost imperceptibly, slipped into accommodating the culture. Of course, our fellowship must be loving and attract those who hunger and thirst, but we must never forget that the early church did not explode because it was it was a comfortable haven for those weary of life's pressures or because it accommodated the culture's values. The early church turned the world upside down because the believers confessed that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. They didn't embrace the culture. They scandalized it. And the center, and the center of that scandal was the cross, that offense that we remember together tonight. Now on Sunday, we'll mark the resurrection, a truly glorious and joyous thing to mark. Christ's victory over sin and death. But let's not move too quickly to that celebration. Let's not forget the event that was necessary for that celebration to begin with. As offensive as the reality is, we must remember that there would be no empty tomb without a bloody cross. There would be no crown of glory without a crown of thorns. There would be no resurrection without a crucifixion. Jesus could not have raised us to newness of life 
if He didn't first lay down His life for us. Our sins could never be forgiven if His blood hadn't been shed on the offensive cross of Christ. There is no Easter Sunday without the offense of the cross on Good Friday. As we prepare for Sunday's celebration, we must pause tonight and we must look at the horror. We must look at this offense. The sinless Son of God willingly, as part of God's eternal plan, gave Himself up for humanity, for you, for me. The Scriptures tell us He was beaten. The Scriptures tell us He was spat upon. His body was torn to shreds. He was cursed. He bled. He died. We need the offense of the cross because it forces us to look at our sin and forces us to consider the cost. But more than that, it allows us to look at Jesus. Because as great as our sin is, as large as our shame is, His amazing grace is greater still. So yes, this coming Sunday, let's join together on Easter and let's sing with joy and let's rejoice in the resurrection. But let's not forget the offense of the cross. Let's not forget what Isaiah prophesied about this offense centuries before Jesus. We read a few verses from this passage a moment ago, but I think it's worth reading again in context. He, referring to Jesus prophetically, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus and we have to remember that Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is God incarnate. And that's who Isaiah was writing about here. That's offensive. That's an offensive thing to consider. But it's an offense that we must consider as we ponder the meaning of the cross tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank You, especially for those of us who are in Christ here tonight, we thank You that we had to face and even embrace the offense of the cross, realizing that it's an indictment of our sin.
realizing that it demonstrates the great need that we have to surrender to you because there is no salvation apart from the blood of Jesus shed on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, for this instrument of our salvation. Though it offend, Father, though it's hard to understand, though to some of the world it seems foolish, to some of the world it seems offensive, we are grateful for the cross because it is the power of God for our salvation. We thank you for these things, even as we ponder what you willingly suffered on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.